0: Welcome to InScope, the healthcare security podcast. Each episode, we bring you interviews, technical tips, and a unique point of view on the challenges facing the ever-changing healthcare ecosystem. Here's
1: your host, Mike Murray. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of InScope, the healthcare security podcast. As always, I'm Mike Murray, and as always, I'm excited to have a very cool guest today. Somebody that I've known for a whole lot of years, and and has been in the security industry as long as I have. So it's going to be two old guys ranting, hopefully coherently, about all kinds of topics in security. So today I have with me Wolfgang Gorlick, who is... Most recently hanging out at Cisco on the Duo and Virtual CISO team over there that many people know, but has done so many things and, and want to get into his career. But I'll let Wolf introduce himself and talk a little bit about how he, you know, his long career in security. And so Wolf, happy to have you here, man, and love to have this conversation. Tell the audience a little bit about you for anybody who doesn't know you already, which is probably not that many people, but let's tell them who you are.
0: Mike, thanks for having me on. And I love that idea of two old people. It's like pull up a rocking chair on the porch, children, and listen to the old men ramble. So yes, I got into security right in the 90s when the movie Hackers was still in the theaters, which I thought was a really auspicious start. And I used to think, oh, that's cool. Like when Hackers started. But I was on, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine, one of the people I mentor. He's like, yeah, I never watched that movie. I'm like, what? And he goes, "Well, I don't watch a lot of older movies, so I'm like, oh
1: <laughs> man, kill
0: me." So from there, I went into healthcare, and I ran IT, and IT security in the healthcare space for a number of years. Did a stint doing consulting, a couple startups, and then went into financial services where I, I built a DevOps team and did security and compliance for a money management firm. Coming out of that, I went back into consulting where I ran an IM team, a GRC team, a data protection team, a strategic advisory slash fractional CISO team, and an apprenticeship and didn't sleep for five, six years. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and today I am with Cisco with, uh, you know, the great team headed up with Doug Song and Wendy Nather and just trying to bring some of the lessons of
1: security into the product space that's incredibly cool. And you and I have often have often gotten into conversations about careers in this industry. I think and part of it is just getting to be an old person and being around for a long time, you see a lot of the different careers, but you mentioned the apprenticeship program and, and I think that that's so fascinating. Like we have so many young folks coming into the security industry these days and and I think it's a really hard career. I've always I did an RSA talk many years ago that I titled Security is the Hardest Career. Because the issues in security are always at the front end of the technology lifecycle, we are front loaded, right? By the time a technology has been around for twenty years, and we'll probably get into this, you and I both like to talk product security. By the time something's been around for a long time, a lot of the security issues are worked out. So, you know, in two thousand and three, there was a burgeoning career in Wi-Fi security, and I, you know, remember there was Wi-Fi security certifications and the whole thing. And if you got a Wi-Fi security certification today you'd probably be pretty unemployable, right? But that's not true of like Java programming, right? I I learned Java programming in 1995 on Java 1, and I'm not a good Java programmer anymore, but I can still understand it when I read the code. Talk a little bit about, about what you think makes a good career in security. As someone who's managed to survive for for over 20 years, how do you do it? How do you keep the longevity in this industry?
0: So a uh, Few years back I posted this on my blog because there was an article about top ten dead or dying tech skills. And I went, Yep, that was me in the nineties. Yep, that was me in the early odds. Yeah, I made money off that for a while. Ooh, I think I did a consulting service around that. Right. I mean every one of them. But I, I wanna challenge one thing you said there. One of the things that I find, and this week, this week I should be at that conference, but pandemic, is there's a lot of value in going and seeing what the developers are doing. Because I've got this theory, it's a a two-year cycle between hype and panic. And what that means is, what I see in uh, the developer conference circa 2022 is what security people are going to be panicking about in 2024. I saw that with Kubernetes, I saw that with Docker, I saw, you just go down the list. Why? Because they're excited and they're building it, and by the time enough of it gets out, then we're like, wait a minute our entire company is reliant upon that. And then someone breaks in and then we all panic. We're like, what did they do? And we try. And you're right. And then two, three years after that, no one cares. Certifications are worthless. And we moved on. So part of it, I think, is security is, is the fine art of jumping from log to log on a running train that's going downhill as the logs are falling off and going over the ravine. And your goal is to go, what log is going to be interesting next <laughs> and jump to that before whatever you're on falls off the tracks because our, our skills commodify incredibly quickly and they should, right? If we're doing our jobs right, Wi-Fi security should be a checkbox in the device and hopefully configured by default and hopefully there's a good design on it. It should be that way. But the key to a good career is to recognize that and realize that whatever you know today is absolutely worthless in a couple of years.
1: That makes it really hard for things like degree programs. I worked with someone about 10 years ago who was trying to write a college class for exploitation techniques, and what he found was that the approval cycle for the syllabus was so long, was like 18 months, that by the time the syllabus for his class was approved, it was obsolete. So how do you do that? If you're like, you know, you're a college student that just came out today and you realize you're standing on a log that two years from now is now useless.
0: Yeah. And I have had serious, uh, similar experiences because I try to help out with different universities writing the courseware or, or framing up the questions, which I love writing questions. It's a whole nother story. There's an art to that, by the way, there's a, and once you get the art, you can pass any test because it's like, oh, I recognize how you, anyways, I, I, I digress. You're right. And so good courseware is courseware that says, here's a, a longstanding principle that has existed for 30 years that you should know, youngin. And by the way, here's how we're going to demonstrate it. And this is going to be in a lab that's going to run forever. And it's probably on Windows 7 if you're taking it today. And then when you get to the real world, please remember that principle and apply it. But that bridge is so difficult. And that's why I think in a very real way, security has to be thought of as being a, a craft, right? It's like we're the craftsmen. We're bringing in. Folks to apprentice under us, we got to say, all right, this type of cutting the wood anyone can do. Start there, right, and then I'll show you how to do the join. Or if you're a painter, think about how the masters, right? Da Vinci didn't paint all his paintings; he outlined it, and he had his apprenticeships painting the uh, certain areas, and then he did the real hard stuff. We've got to think about security more as a craft to help people bridge that gap, because otherwise, whatever you learned in college, that prince, that lovely principle. You're not going to recognize it when you hit it in the streets, right? You're not going to recognize the latest exploit technique.
1: Yeah, completely agree. And that's been, for me, the the only thing I ever got right, I think, in my career was that I'm good at learning principles. And, and part of it is just my own neurodiversity, right? I have uh, anybody who knows me knows how bad my ADD is. And so the only way I can survive is by understanding the thing behind the, you know, the question behind the question to your point about writing questions. I didn't go to most of my college classes. The only reason I got through college is because I had the skill that you're talking about. I, I could figure out how to answer the question, even if I didn't know the answer. And I think that that's the skill that is required to be long, long-term insecurity because the rule, you know, like the technology changes, but the rules don't. Right. And I think it's the rules that are the most interesting part, the, the principles behind it, like you said, which kind of leads us into good product security. You and I were nerding out before we started recording about design and how you build products securely from a design perspective. Talk a little bit about that. I know you've been speaking on that lately, and, and that's an interest of yours lately. Yeah, so
0: this little thing called COVID happened and and i was wait i don't think anybody knows about that. no no one probably knows about it so i was uh i was traveling quite frequently i was actually in europe going from country to country as the country shut down we would go to a different country we'd hop on a train and you know something in the back of my head should have been "Ah, this is bad there's something bad happening but i figured ah it's fine at least shut down we'll go to munich it's no big deal and so we left on the last plane last plane from paris to the u.s on march 13th before everything shuts down we get on the very last plane probably the very last ticket on the very last plane and we land and there's that two week we're just gonna do nothing and we'll flatten the curve and i did that and then the curve didn't flatten and uh, a good friend of mine who knows me is like you got to do something you've got to have a project you have something you're digging into or you my friend are going to go insane <laughs> and I'm Like, oh, okay And so what started out as back to your point about neurodiversity and diverse interests, what started out as an interest in like 20th century design. Let me look at old cars and old coffee pots and old toasters and, and see what, you know, ways those were designed has really led into a multi-year effort by me to look at some of the design principles. What makes What makes a good watch? What makes a good computer? What makes a a good coffee pot, a good mug? And what are some of those things and how do they apply to security? And one of the interesting things is it always starts with the user, right? It always starts with an emphasis on how people work. As you and I were talking many times and and before we started recording, we didn't get into this because we liked people. We got into this because we liked machines and they would do what we said. (laughs) So. Thinking in design terms is, is, does not come easy for a lot of us.
1: Yeah. So tell us about that. I mean, it, truthfully, I, I haven't ever dug into design at that level. What did you learn, man? Well, one of my,
0: my favorite ideas in design is this idea of affordances. And so what an affordance is, is it's effectively like anything that gets you to do something, right? So like one of the textbook examples was in Stockholm, Sweden. They wanted people to like walk down the stairs. And I'm sure you guys have seen this video or GIF. What they did was they're like, oh, well, we'll, we'll make the stairs into a piano. We'll make it interactive. We'll make it fun. And now suddenly everyone's using the stairs. And you're like, all right, well, that's great. You know, dancing, dancing is good, dancing is fun, and it, that I guess that makes sense from a TikTok perspective, right? Yeah, that can go viral. But what does that have to do with security? And yet, we saw something very similar with Epic Games, where Epic Games wanted people to do MFA, and so what is the security answer to doing MFA? Well, we're going to turn it on. If they complain, they can go work somewhere else. I mean, yeah, we, we can, we'll force them. Right, we'll force it. No problem. What Epic Games did was they had this like boogie down emote. That you could get for your character that made your character jump up and down and dance. And you got that if you turned on 2FA. And everything they'd done to get 2 FA, like barely moved the needle, the minute they gave people boogie it down emote, like their MFA adoption went three, four-fold up. It was just incredible. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, the number of times that I talk to health systems and they're they're talking about oh man, we're trying to implement MFA and our doctors hate it and our nurses hate it and, and nobody wants to use it. I mean, you, you started out in healthcare. You probably understand this particular population in that way, right? I've never once heard anyone do something like that. And we had this this phase like about five years ago where people talked about gamification for a hot minute, but you don't ever hear about people doing that sort of thing. You know, how, how have you brought that into, into actual practice? Well, so that that's just
0: one example of affordance. And you can get, there's multiples. There's like functional, does it work the way I think it should? There's emotional, that's what I'm talking about here. Is it fun? Do I want to do it? Gamification. Cognitive, does it work like I want it to? Physical, does it move like I think it should? Do I have muscle memory to, to move it? Sensory, there's a whole bunch of different affordances. One of the ones that I thought was very interesting in the duo space and this was something that we talked about when I was interviewing on with their then head of product was they spend a whole bunch of time in the frowny face. So if you're, if your software is out of compliance and you can't get in, you get this little frowny face that says, you should, you should update your stuff. And they're like, well, if it's too frowny, people think they're getting judged, right? Now they're mad at their phone. But if it's not frowny enough, they're like, oh, well, I don't really need, so there's like this sweet spot with the users emotionally around the right emoji to get someone to update their software. And I thought it was fascinating that they spent the time to go through and figure that
1: out and, and encourage people. So that that's one very simple example. That's a really cool example. And and, and actually, now that you said that, I mean, it's one of the reasons that and, and I'm a big fan of Duo and have been for a long time, long before, you know, the Cisco acquisition and the like. Because I always thought it was just a really nice product to use. And I never really thought about that level of detail about it. And I think that's something we don't do in our industry. We don't talk enough about the human factor of what we're trying to do. Like we, like you said, turn it on and if they don't like it, they can go somewhere else. That's been our way. I heard somebody once described security as the department of no, because we say no to everything and and that's just how we do it. And I don't think enough of us think about how do we get the outcomes from the people that we want? Whether you're talking about how do I design security into a product? How do I design a security program? How do I design a security career? We don't think about the human factors enough.
0: No, and what happens there is, so you take those, those affordances, right? That's the design that's giving affordance to the person. If you flip those on the hand, think of those as like emotional needs, right? Or not emotional needs, because that's only one affordance, but like a human need right? I need, when I pick up my coffee cup and I'm holding it to the screen, which no one can see, it is well designed and it fits my hand, right? There are ways that things work well and things that don't. And if they don't work well, what do people do? What have we done since we, you know, climbed out of the cave and picked up the first stick and lit the first fire? If our needs are not met, we change our environment. And what that means in the security space is every time we see a security exception or people working around us, we think, aha, We just need to give them awareness training. That will solve it, which we know it doesn't. Or, aha, we just need to punish them. If we fired everyone who didn't follow our IAM onboarding in this hospital, we would. And doctors like, you're what? (laughs) (laughs) Did you hear what you just said? So if you don't meet those needs with affordances, people work around you. And if you look at any exception as a need that's not met, as opposed to a user who doesn't know what they're doing. You can have much better conversations, much better products, much better security programs, much better training and opportunities in your career.
1: You mentioned it. You mentioned it. Because so many of us are technology nerds, that's not our first instinct. So, So flipping that around and kind of coming full circle on both parts of the conversation that we've had so far, how do we teach the young folks this? Right. How do we get the young folks, as two old guys sitting here who both started as, you know, tech nerds, how do we get the next generation not to be like us? <laughs> not to be like
0: us and at the same time to still have some of the benefits we had. Because of course. Of course. I, I think one of the things that's really Seems to be lost at the moment or getting lost and shrinking is the excitement and the energy that a lot of us had for this field and this career. And now people are like, I took my you know, high school test and they told me I should be a security person. And I went to college and now here I am and now I'm doing my job. Like, no, if you're just going to do your job, you should be an accountant or whatever else, you know, enjoy what you're doing. So we got to, while we teach the next generation, we also need to preserve some of the weird, if that makes sense.
1: Completely. And actually, I think you described why. And I loved your description of the security career as literally jumping from log to log while the logs fall off, right? That metaphor is so apt because I've always believed that as a security person, you effectively have to reinvent yourself about every three years. And that's not true of an accountant, right? The rules, if you're an accountant, the rules of GAP, right, have been the same since 1907. And so, Things don't change that much in accounting. Sure, there's updates to the tax laws every couple of years, and and things change a little bit, but the general principles are the same. In our industry, you have to reinvent yourself. And I find that that's what, if you're in this without that excitement, you last past your first or second reinvention, and then you're like, I don't really want to have to relearn some new technology. I'm going to go be an SE or a product manager or some other security adjacent function because you don't have to keep reinventing. And I think that passion thing's a really hard one because without it, how do you keep yourself jumping from log to log when you're in your late 30s, 40s, 50s, and you have a family and a life and you don't want to have to go read a book about Kubernetes because you've never heard of it? Yes, exactly. Or it
0: is the holiday like you know, we recently had, and you're like, I need to step away from my family and go up to my study and do a CTF, which is what I was doing, and knock off the rust and remember my Metasploit commands and everything because I never use that as a CISO, <laughs> those sort of things. So w- we need to make sure that we're preserving the excitement. And I think part of it is too, is using the real world as examples. So much of what is taught in the university is, is dated for the reasons we already discussed is a abstract scenario for obvious reasons and doesn't take into account all the gray and the nuance that you get in the real world. So I loved when I was running the apprenticeship. So I did the apprenticeship for about four or five years. We interviewed 3,500 people, believe it or not. It was a huge amount of interviewing. And we hired and put through 67 folks. And it was a two-year program. And the pitch was, you know, we'll give you three to five years of experience in two by coupling it with heavy training, heavy mentoring, lots of uh, varied uh, varied scenarios. And the reason that worked well was because, you know, you can end a conversation. And one of my mentors, when I was like just getting into this, maybe 15 years ago now, 20 years ago now, he would pull me in. This is like cedared, gray haired guy. He was in charge of all IT in this company. And he's like, I want you in this, in this meeting. I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? Like, Nothing. Just come and listen. And he'd hang off the phone. He turned to me and go, so what'd you hear? Why did they say that? That is what they said, but what were they thinking behind it? Right? Those types of questions like, what did you see? What did you hear? What did you think? And then providing the context such as affordances like we talked about earlier, or such as, you know, the nuances of human psychology, the way corporate politics play out when you're in a very large organization or, or a very small organization. <laughs> so all those sort of things, it, I, I really think it has to be the senior craftsman, pulling in the new guy and saying, all right, that's a nice join. Now, what do you see there?
1: And helping you see those things that you don't see otherwise. And flipping it around, I see so many of our contemporaries not doing exactly what you're saying. I feel, and you and I, I think, lead in similar ways, right? I feel like there's a... This is going to be a terrible way to say this, but there's there's like a duty we have to those young folks to actually have the conversations you're talking about, to pull them aside and say and say all of the things that you're talking about, because otherwise, how do you learn? I I was very lucky to have the same kind of mentorship that that you had from a couple of really brilliant people. And otherwise, I think I'd still be clueless about most of those things. Absolutely. But
0: I will add the caveat. So if you're a senior person, you're like, hey, I just heard what Mike said and I'm about to go in the office or I'm about to get the WebEx. When I see that junior person, I'm going to pull him aside and say, look, <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't do that right. One of the things that I learned doing this apprenticeship was mentoring is a skill and not everyone is cut out for it. And so much like we spend a lot of time building other skills, I spend time like reading books on how to be a mentor. I just screwed up as a mentor. I'll give you. I can give you that story if you want. Because I, I. Oh, this is great. Yeah, I love those ones. I mentor more senior people now. Well, here, here's a really good example. So I'm I'm mentoring a, a, a gentleman, and uh, he's running a team. It's a it's a you know reasonably complex team, and I was giving him some frameworks for how to to lead this team. It's like, oh, that's great. Where does this come from? I said, well, a couple different places. But one of the places is a book that I read many years ago. I loved it. It's really had a good impact on me. And so he reads it. And the next time we get together, he's like, yeah, I, I sell that book. <laughs> like, what did you think? He's like, oh, you know. It's, I know you can, you can tell me what you think. Like, All the stories are about these superhero CEOs rushing in and saving the day and changing things. And it's like, none of that makes any sense to where I'm at. I'm not, I'm not the CEO of the company. I'm not in a startup. I'm like, oh, well, all right. So I can see that point. What, what books were resonated with you? And he's like, oh, this one, that one, the other, because these are more of my field and these are more what I do. And so I immediately bought them on audible and I'm listening to them on the tribal or, or wherever. So now when I have those conversations, I'm like, oh yeah, you remember this story pertains to this idea. And, and it's an, it's a thing as a mentor you learn over and over again, which is what got you here won't get them there. And what resonates with you and the language and, and the ideas that resonates with you aren't the ones that necessarily resonate with them. So mentoring is a skill and it's something that you have to constantly be working on. And so we do have an obligation to reach out to folks, but we also have an obligation to do it well so that we don't run people out of the industry.
1: Actually, you just tied everything together with that. And I want to hear what you think about this. But exactly what you just said about meeting your mentees where they are kind of ties into what you were talking about with design, right? We have to meet the users where they are at the same time, right?
0: Yeah, no, that's a really good point. If you think about like these stories we share as affordances that allow people to grasp knowledge and get things done. Then making sure that we're using the right affordances, and put differently, making sure that we're meeting the needs of our audience, and that could be end users, that could be the people we're we're coaching. Yeah, spot on. We've got to make sure that we're constantly adjusting and using tight feedback loops to make
1: sure. <laughs> Did that work? No, it didn't. Okay, let's let's try something else. Let's do better. Absolutely. Well, Wolf, thank you so much for coming on today. This has been so fantastic. And I always, I always end by asking everyone, where can the world find more, Wolf? Where, where can we find more of you? If, if the listener today wants to, wants to hear more of your wisdom and, and the things that you have to say, where will we find you? So as already mentioned, I'm the
0: advisory CISO with Cisco Secure. So you can follow my blog at uh, Cisco Secure. My personal stuff is at jwgorlick.com. I blog there. You can also follow my YouTube, which I post talks and, and sometimes short videos if I'm feeling in the mood. I haven't done that as much uh, as of late. And then on Twitters, right? I'm, I'm constantly on Twitter.
1: It's, it's my decade-long addiction now. Mine as well. What's your Twitter handle? JW Gorlick. Beautiful. Thanks again for being here, man. This has been fantastic. We need to do this again. Always love, always love these conversations. Yeah, so great to catch up with you, Mike. Thanks, Will.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of InScope. To make sure you never miss an episode, hop on over to www.scopesecurity.com to sign up. Or you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. And if you have ideas for topics, guests, or technical tips, please contact us at podcast at scopesecurity.com.